Please join me in welcoming to the Distinctive Voices podium, Beth Shapiro. Hello. I'm actually not gonna stand behind the podium because I'm really short. <laughs> well, it's true. I feel like I'm not really communicating with people when I'm back here underneath this thing. You can't really see anything more than like from here up, which is, you know, that's probably fine, but uh, I feel more comfortable like this. Um, we have a special treat tonight. Um, I thought that I would take a moment to introduce him first so that everyone isn't sitting there just wondering what the heck this dude is doing right here. Uh, <laughs> this is Peter Duran. Peter Duran is from Alpha Chimp, and he is a, uh, what did you say I should call it? Some Graphic recording artist, that's what I said I was going to call him. He's a graphic recorder, so what he is going to be doing is he is going to be drawing my presentation while I give it. Uh, so he, he actually, he was taking part in, so we, I've been here as part of a conference for the last couple of days that's brought together scientists from across the country who do very different things, black holes and paleogenomics and crazy chemical polymers that heal themselves and stuff like that. And Peter has been drawing uh, everyone's talk in this whole conference and it's been super cool. And I asked him, kind of begged him, today at the coffee break to come and, and do this for us tonight. And so um, I'm sure that he will proudly display the work outside so everybody can see it after the, after the presentation is over. And uh, I have, uh, I'm very excited about it. So anyway, Peter, everyone, let's give him a round of applause before we even start. All right, so now, so I thought to, to introduce myself and what I was gonna talk about, I thought I would start with a short clip uh, that I made. Um, I'm a National Geographic emerging explorer. I'm, I'm not sure what I'm emerging from, but that's, <laughs> that's what we're called. Um, and as part of that, I, I do a series of things for them, and one of them was we were making some short documentaries for the web about the work that we as explorers do. So just to start off, this is me in the field a few years ago doing the stuff that I do in the field, which is kind of strange. This is really cool. What we've just found, you can see, is one, two, three, four pieces of mammoth bone here. This is part of a vertebra, so you can see how big this is. And the neat thing about this is that these are the small pieces, which means that the stuff is washed downstream. See, these pieces are actually still frozen in the permafrost. We can't get them out at all, which means they're going to be really well preserved. Just heard that big splash of water back there. That means another hole's broken through. Here comes the water. We better get out of here. <laughs> so, so what's going on there is uh, that was taken just outside of Dawson City in the Yukon Territory, and there's a whole bunch of active gold mining there. And they do gold mining outside of Dawson City by what's called placer mining. Basically, they're washing this permafrost, this frozen dirt, off of the walls with these high-power water hoses. They pump the water up after the spring melt and use that to melt the stuff away. And as they're doing that, they don't really care about these bones that are coming out of there. They're trying to get rid of all of the dirt to get to the gold-bearing gravels that are underneath this dirt. But those bones, like those mammoth bones that you see there, just fall out of that permafrost as it's being washed away. And so we go along and we collect those bones and we take them back to the lab and extract their DNA. So I've decided to call what I do uh, molecular paleontology. So I, I, I like this title. What do you think? I've, kind of, I've made it up. You know, I don't really know what I do. So this is the, something. So so yeah, I, I'm a I'm a molecular paleontologist. And before we get into uh, the crazy, which is the promised subject of what we're going to talk about today, I thought I would tell you a little bit about what motivates my actual research, what I spend my days in my lab and my students try to focus on. So. We see a lot of images like this these days, where we think about how 
climate change and maybe the way that we're changing uh, the planet as a species are going to affect the distribution and abundance of things. So we see images like this where we have droughts, massive droughts and dried up rivers and lakes. And we see changes in storm patterns that cause this devastation on coastlines and massive snowstorms in Buffalo when you're not expecting them and, and kind of crazy things like this. <laughs> And you know, we talk about species that may or may not be on the brink of extinction as a consequence of some of these big, large-scale changes that are happening to the planet as we know it. And of course, what we see are a lot of these kind of doom and gloom kind of prophecies about what's going to happen. And, and I love some of these headlines, um, especially this one here. It's kind of my favorite, but sorry, with the. New York Post is, is, is all about, right? Uh, but anyway, so what, a big question that we would like to be able to answer is this. How are species and communities and ecosystems, including our species, but really we're thinking now about the biodiversity of other things that live on the planet. How are species going to respond to this massive and dramatic climate change that's happening today? So this is the famous hockey stick plot that you guys have probably seen before. And this is where we show, this is a proxy for temperature. So here we have temperature in the past, 1,000 years ago. And we see that it's pretty stable, wobbling around for a long time. And then recently, pretty recently here, we have this massive increase. And so this is atmospheric carbon dioxide. It's a proxy for temperature. And we have this prediction that says, whoa, look at how really, really hot it's going to get. It goes all the way up here. And it says this is a disaster. So over the course of you know, 150 years or so, we have this huge increase in temperature by about a degree Celsius, or maybe a degree and a half, with much more predicted into the future. So what's interesting is that this is not the first time in history that we've seen such a tremendous change in temperatures. And I'm not even talking about the dinosaurs and hot earth and stuff like that. Really recently, like recently, as in we can get it, get to it with DNA, there was a similar really rapid change in temperature. So here's this same plot, but extended much further backward in time. Here's the present day and 50,000 years ago. So this interval is part of the Pleistocene. Right now we're in the Holocene. This here, this warm part, this is the Holocene epoch that we're in today. And this is the Pleistocene. The Pleistocene is well known as a period of really dramatic oscillations between cold ice ages and warm interglacial periods. We're in a warm interglacial period right now. 125,000 years ago, we were in another warm interglacial period. In fact, it was so warm 125,000 years ago that there may not have been any polar ice. We don't actually know for sure. But that's a pretty big swing in temperatures. So 50,000 years ago, we were in what's called an interstadial. It wasn't an ice age. It wasn't as cold as an ice age is. But it wasn't as warm as an interglacial period. The ice age peaked right around here, around 20,000 years ago. And then we had this really rapid transition into the warm Holocene, this warm interglacial period. Now, this scale right here, this shows you a degree Celsius change. This scale right here shows you eight, eight degrees. That's a pretty fantastic change. Now, it's happened over a longer interval, right? We have many thousands of years over which these temperature changes were happening. But our work in the Yukon has recently showed that this rapid interval right here, this really big change, probably happened over the course of decades, if not centuries. So this is a past period of incredibly rapid climate change. So what we do in my lab is we ask, instead of thinking about how species will respond to climate change, we use DNA to go back into the past and actually ask how species did respond to past periods of climate change. And in doing so, we hope to be able to come up with some scientifically uh, based or exciting ways of thinking about how species are going to respond to future change. Maybe we can use some of the information that we learn to make good decisions about how to conserve and protect biodiversity that's there. So I work in a field that's called ancient DNA. It doesn't mean really old people's DNA, and it doesn't mean dinosaur DNA. I'm sorry about that. Um, but it does mean that we can get DNA out of stuff that's pretty old. Most of the time, I work in a place called Beringia. Now, this 
plot, this right here, you see this color here, this is because the sea level in this area is a lot shallower than it is elsewhere in the world. So during ice ages, lots of the water that normally is in the ocean was actually taken up into making these massive glaciers that formed across the continents. And because the ice was here and the water wasn't here, the sea level was a lot lower. And all of this kind of lightly colored area right here was exposed, forming this land bridge that connected North America with this over here, which is the part of the world that Sarah Palin can see from her backyard. <laughs> you remember that, right? <laughs> so this area right here is called Beringia. Now, Beringia, crucially, was cold and dry. It wasn't so dry that the, it, it, well, it wasn't so wet that we got lots of glaciers forming across it, but it wasn't so dry that it, it didn't actually, it was, I'm gonna start over here. It was a very rich and productive grassland, Beringia, and that's a good thing because this was then a conduit for exchange of plants and animals between these two continents whenever the sea level was lower. So this is what Beringia looks like today. I'm actually in this helicopter taking the picture, kind of pointing down. We have this kind of treeless area with not very much going on, this kind of crazy topography here where you see the cracking in the permafrost soil. This is actually in the Timer Peninsula, not Beringia proper, but this is really what Beringia looks like. But during the Ice Age, it looked like this. Instead of having nothing and no trees, we had trees and rich grasslands and an equally rich and diverse community of animals. Mostly big animals. We talk about the Ice Age megafauna, things like mammoths and woolly rhinos. Woolly rhinos were only in Asia. They never made it across the land bridge into North America, but there were woolly rhinos. There were lions. There were a couple different species of horses. There were crazy things that you can't even imagine living right here in California, saber-toothed cats, giant 16-foot-tall bears called Arctodus, with a short face. We killed them. You might understand why, right? Uh, yeah. Um, before that, during previous interglacial periods, there were even crazier things. There were camels, several different species of camel living in North America. There was a five-foot-tall beaver. For real? That's the funniest of all extinct animals. Just is. Anyway, it was a very rich and productive area. And we can use ancient DNA so we fly out of these places, and, and uh, this is kind of an example of the, there's, there's me going in the field here, and see people wearing hats like this. That's because there are a few mosquitoes per cubic millimeter. <laughs> and you'll notice that this helicopter is beautiful and, and in great condition. It's missing a few windows here. Yeah. That turned out to be a good thing, because when this helicopter finally took off on the third try of loading everything up and getting back down, and we were perched on top of these massive gas tanks that take up most of the inside of the helicopter on our stuff. The Russian and French team that were coordinating this decided that would be a great time to smoke and celebration. <laughs> Yay! So we fly out there and we stay in five-star accommodation. <laughs> these are mosquitoes, yes? <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's lovely. And this is an example of placer mining kind of operation that's going on. Um, that, that picture of the tent was actually in Siberia, but this is from uh, just south of Dawson City in the Klondike area. This is an example of how they use this placer mining to wash the, the dirt down. So they're just getting rid of all this dirt and, and they spray it down for a little while and then they stop and they let the sun beat down on it and melt the next bit of it. And then they spray that bit down and they stop. And every time they do it, you can see kind of my team kind of standing around over here looking for bones. We'll walk around, we'll mess around a little bit, try not to get sprayed by that water because it's really gross. <laughs> and then we'll just collect all these bones that are there. And uh, in a day of working up there, we'll collect somewhere between 10 and 20 bags like this with bones. Um, and these bones range in age from you know, a couple thousand years ago to um, somewhere around uh, 100, 200,000 years ago. We recently published a genome from a horse bone that we collected on one of these expeditions that we know is 700,000 years old. That's the oldest genome that we've been able to sequence and put together so far. And it's just a regular horse. It's the same kind of horse that we domesticated, but 700,000 years old. So pretty cool. We can learn about these things. And this is mostly reindeer and mammoth and and bison and horse, and those are the, the major things that we find. But we also find bears and lions and the, the cool carnivores that are up there. And we take a big chunk out of them and we take them back to the lab and we extract DNA. 
So we've learned a lot of cool things by doing this, this work over the years. So uh, we can, by uh, looking at the amount of genetic diversity that we find in a population at one point, we can use that to estimate how big that population was. The idea is that if a population has a lot of diversity, then it's a very big population. If it has not very much diversity, then it's a small population. And we can look at changes in the amount of genetic diversity in populations of bison or horses through time and then use that to infer how these animals were responding to changes in climate or to people first turning up in North America sometime around 12 to 14,000 years ago and ask of these things, what impacted these populations? And we've seen that bison and horses and mammoths have huge populations around 35 to 40,000 years ago, but then the populations begin to crash. And they go in this precipitous decline right up until the time of the Ice Age. And then they really start to decline. And then people come in. And at that point, they're already very small populations. And they're probably hiding out in pockets of refugial habitat because the climate's getting warmer. But hiding out in those pockets of refugial habitat is really a bad idea because it tells us exactly where to go to kill them, right? And so even though people are probably not the proximate cause of the extinction of these things, they, they didn't start the extinction, they didn't begin the decline of these populations, we probably are the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. It probably is our fault that mammoths went extinct. We've also watched populations move across space. So we see that while bison and horse and mammoth populations are really big, Bear populations, because they got a lot to eat, are growing and distributing and moving across space. And we see bears coming out of Alaska and making new populations all the way across Siberia, establishing new giant populations of bears all the way into Eastern Europe over the course of maybe 10,000 years. We can actually see this, trace this happening just by looking at their DNA sequences. And we learn then why some species have gone extinct. So we look and see how the diets of these animals have changed. We can look at the isotopes that are in their bones and figure out what they're eating and whether what they're eating is disappearing and why some species that just seem to stay away from humans seem to do really well. And we think all this stuff is really cool. You know, We think this is super exciting, wonderful stuff. It's good science. We're contributing to general knowledge. We're coming up with ideas that can be used to make really good decisions about how to try to conserve biodiversity today. And whenever we have really cool papers come out and we're really excited about them, we get calls from the press, nobody ever wants to know about the actual science. <laughs> they only ever have one question. <laughs> it's devastating, honestly. And so that's what I've come here to talk to you guys about. Can we clone a mammoth? How close are we to cloning a mammoth? What technology do we need to develop to clone a mammoth? And should we be doing this anyway? And hopefully over the next half an hour or so, I'm going to give you an outline of what we've learned so far, uh, what we still need to learn, and kind of where we're going in, the, in this trajectory of de-extinction, a new field, a new science of undoing extinctions, of bringing things that are gone back. Kind of. So, <laughs> the extinction is not a new idea, really. We've all heard of it. We know that we did it once before. <laughs> and we know how well it went. <laughs> so do we really want to do it again? <laughs> so, we can't actually bring dinosaurs back to life. Maybe. Ask me about that later, and I can, probably, I can give you the, the reason why I'm saying maybe, but okay, we can't sequence DNA from dinosaurs, but we might not need to, okay? Watch that space. Anyway, so when people think about cloning a mammoth, cloning a mammoth, the word cloning actually has specific connotations. When we talk about cloning, what we're really talking about is a scientific technique that's called somatic cell nuclear transfer. Somatic cell nuclear transfer is the process that brought us, most famously, Dolly the sheep. Who's familiar with the Dolly the sheep? Right, so this is work that was, taken care, that was done at the Roslyn Institute in Scotland many years ago. And basically it works like this. You take a cell 
In this case, in the case of Dolly, it was a mammary cell. You take a cell and you put it in a dish in the lab and you starve it. You stress it out to the point where it's not doing very well, it's not growing, it's pretty freaked out. You starve it, make it really kind of unhappy, and then you suck the nucleus out of that cell. Wait, no wait. Mammary cell, blah, 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 yeah, you suck the nucleus out. At the same time, you take an egg from a different type of sheep in this case, because they wanted to be able to show at the end that this experiment had worked, and you remove the nucleus from that thing, right? So now what we have is an egg, which is a cell that's primed to make a new animal, and it doesn't have a nucleus in it, so it doesn't have a way of making a new animal. Now normally, if we hadn't done this, this could be fertilized with sperm from a different individual, it would become a, a fertilized thing, a genome from mom and a genome from dad, and it would go on to create an animal, right? Here we've sucked the whole thing out. So now it has no genomes, none from mom and none from dad, right? So we have our starved and stressed out cell and we have our empty egg and we kind of put them close together and zap them with a bit of electricity. This guy's kind of starved and freaked out, right? So zapping it causes this cell membrane to break and this nucleus gets dumped into that egg cell. So now we have our egg that has two copies of every chromosome, one from mom and one from dad. They just both happen to have come from this same animal because we took a cell that was already a, a regular normal cell, not an egg or a sperm to do this. So we've dumped this nucleus into the cell and then we zap it again and that causes the egg to do magical things that an egg does and cause this thing to start developing. The cell de-differentiates. That's what's called in the stem cell world. It becomes every type of cell in a body. So this cell stops being a mammary cell. It forgets everything that it needed to learn to be a mammary cell and kind of resets itself. It resets itself into a way that it can then become any type of cell. And this happens, it develops, you stick it into a surrogate mom, you wait for the end of the pregnancy and voila, magically you have a sheep that is an absolute genetic clone of the animal whose cell you started off with. That's how somatic cell nuclear transfer works. Pretty easy, right? <laughs> so what we would have to do in that case is we would have to go out into Siberia or into Alaska and we would have to find a mammoth that is incredibly well-preserved, super well-preserved, so well-preserved that you have an intact cell with an intact nucleus that contains an intact genome, right? And then you would take that intact cell and you would do this kind of crazy stuff where you take the cell and you grow it up in a dish and you stress it out. And then you can take that cell and you can stick it into another cell and do the zapping thing. And then that grows up inside a surrogate host who eventually gives birth to a baby mammoth that you have and that goes out and lives in the happy ending ever after, yes. <laughs> so to do that, the first thing we have to do is find the cell, right? Find a living mammoth cell. So we can go out into the, into the wherever we're going to go. We can go up here. This is that 700,000-year-old horse, which is pretty cool. We can find these incredibly well-preserved mummies. This is the thing that was found last spring. Do you remember there was all, all over the news, there was this mummified mammoth that was found that purportedly had blood that was associated with it. And this is the exciting new thing about whether or not there's going to be living cells in there. And, uh, and you can go out in here and you can do all these wonderful things, but there is a problem with all of this. And that is that DNA decays almost immediately after an organism starts to die. And that means that there isn't actually going to be a living cell in anything, no matter how well-preserved it is. DNA decays by enzymes. We have enzymes throughout our body whose job it is to break down DNA. There are enzymes on our fingertips so that when we touch stuff, we break down the DNA from bacteria and viruses so that they stop invading us. There are DNA enzymes like this that, that exist in, inside soil microorganisms or fungi that are going to colonize that bone. They break down the DNA. If you're a mummy, your entire gut is filled with like two kilos of bacteria that have their own enzymes to break DNA. The gut gut bursts, those bacteria go through the circulatory system and start breaking down the DNA. They're, and then the sun is a really horrible thing for DNA. You know that if you get UV radiation on your skin, it causes DNA damage, it causes breaks. Luckily, while we're alive, we have these mechanisms to go through and fix any of the damage from the sun. We don't have those after we're dead. Those are energetic, energetically demanding processes. And after there's death, there is no energy, so we don't fix the DNA. The end result is that when an organism dies, the DNA decays, and there are no living cells. And where there are no cells, we are not going to be able to clone a mammoth. 
The end. <laughs> Just kidding. So obviously I wouldn't be here talking to you if that was the only way that we could do this. So we have all this fancy pants genome technology now. So why can't we just go out, we know we can do this, collect these mammoth bones, forget it, we're not going to find any intact cells, but there's plenty of high quality DNA in those cells. Let's just suck out the DNA and then assemble, sequence and assemble the mammoth genome. And then after we've done that, we can get this big long string of ACs, Gs and Ts, and we can assemble those into chromosomes, and then we can put those chromosomes in the cell, and then the cell and the thing and the whatever and the, and the happily ever after, right? Easy. Easy. Okay, maybe that's not that easy. Okay, so, pop quiz. I'm a college professor, right? How many complete genomes, vertebrate species complete genomes, have been sequenced so far? Three, one, Human. Yeah, no. None. Zero is the answer. Yeah. So in 2001, they announced that uh, they had sequenced the complete human genome, right? And that's true. We have a lot of sequence, but we don't have the whole thing. There are some parts of the human genome that it turns out are just of any genome, that it turns out are really hard to sequence through. We have most of the genome that, where the genes live, called the chromatin, the chromatic sequence. What we don't have are the really kind of complicated repeat regions called heterochromatin. These are like around where the centromeres, the chromosomes come together, and around the ends of the chromosomes. We don't know if they're important, if they do anything, but we haven't been able to sequence them. So if we can't sequence the human genome, and we have an honest-to-goodness bazillion, jillion, million base pairs of human DNA that we could use to put this together, it's going to be pretty hard to sequence a mammoth genome. So the first attempt to sequence a mammoth genome was in 2008, and it's been improved on a little bit since then, but instead of what you saw before, what we have for the mammoth genome looks a bit more like this, right? So we have a lot. We have about 80% maybe of the mammoth genome right now. That's a lot of the mammoth genome. It's not all of it, though, and that's a problem. There are two basic reasons why it's really hard to sequence a genome from something that is dead, right? The first is that the samples have not only DNA from the animal that you're trying to sequence, but all kinds of other crap in there that you've got to wade through to get what you're actually interested in. So if I were to take a piece of my hair or maybe a cheek swab from me and sequence it, right, nearly every bit of DNA that I sequence would be my own DNA. That's because I'm alive, I'm in good condition, there's nothing else that's there. The first mammoth that we tried to sequence using the approach of sequencing every bit of DNA that we extracted, the plot looked a bit more like this. So about half of the DNA that was in this sample was mammoth DNA, and the other half was just other stuff. There was a lot of bacteria, a lot of it was unidentified. This is probably just soil microorganisms who's, who haven't had their genome sequenced yet, so when we compared the sequence to the reference database of everything that's ever been sequenced, it just wasn't in there, right? And so we don't know what it is, but it's probably soil, bacteria, other things that colonize the sample, et cetera. So there's a lot of other stuff in there, and this is actually really good. The Neanderthal bones that were used to sequence and assemble the Neanderthal genome, these bones actually had less than 1% Neanderthal DNA in them. The, the rest of it was environmental DNA. And so the first step, the first thing that makes this really hard is we have to come up with a way to separate out the good, the stuff we're interested in, from the ugly, all the rest of the stuff that is just getting in the way of us being able to sequence it. This is possible. It just means we have to sequence a lot and a lot and a lot of DNA and come up with these ways of computationally distinguishing between what we want and what we don't want. But it's expensive, and there aren't that many labs out there who really care enough to want to sequence a complete mammoth genome, my own lab included, to want to spend that kind of money on doing that, right? So that's a problem. The second problem is that because of this damage that I was talking about, where the UV radiation and the freeze-thaw and the hydrolysis, water getting into these things are breaking down the DNA sequences, the data that we have is actually kind of rubbish, right? Instead of having these really nice long strands of DNA that we might be able to get out of modern DNA, you could extract millions of base pairs long sequence, a base pair being kind of the unit of DNA, the A, C, G, and T that makes up a genome. You can extract millions of those in one big string from something that's ancient DNA, something that's modern DNA. But with ancient DNA, you end up something that's more like this. 
but not quite as nice as this, more like this the day after the parade. And there was like a big rainstorm and horses. <laughs> Maybe a flock of passenger pigeons or something. Really not good. So the average fragment length, the average length of the sequences we can get out of these ancient specimens is not millions, but like 30. Right? And so a genome, a, a mammoth genome, is somewhere around 4 billion bases long. So we have to piece together 4 billion bases of mammoth DNA from 30 base pair fragments that we'd like to overlap on top of each other that are all kind of been run over by horses. How do we do this? Well, fortunately, what we have, for the sake of the mammoth and for the Neanderthal, are we have genome sequences from living organisms that are closely related to them. So we have the African elephant genome sequence, and soon we'll have the Asian elephant genome sequence, and we have the human genome sequence. And we can take these tiny little short fragments of DNA and, with a computer, figure out, like it's a puzzle, where each of these little tiny pieces go along the existing chromosome. This is great, but it's not ideal. The easiest places to figure out where these little tiny puzzle pieces go are going to be the places where we're most conserved. So where we and Neanderthals are the same, or where African elephants and mammoths are the same, those would be the easiest bits to figure out. But the bits where we're, where we're different are going to be the hardest bits to figure out. And one could argue that if you're interested in creating a mammoth, the most important bits to know are probably going to be the bits where they're different from an Asian or an African elephant. So it's less than ideal, right? And mapping, that's what I just said, is not the same thing as sequencing it from scratch. We don't really have the technology to be able to sequence things from scratch. So we can't really do this part. We also don't really know how to get the, uh, the, if we could do that, we don't really know how to make the DNA sequence into chromosomes and to start them acting and behaving like chromosomes. These are fundamental stumbling blocks to sequencing an entire mammoth genome. So this, it turns out, is probably not the way that it's going to work either. But there is another way. And this is the coolest way. So it turns out that there is really cool and awesome genetic engineering technology that we can use to actually go into a cell, go into a genome, and change it. Just change it. So if I know, for example, that I have a disease that's caused by a particular mutation, and it means that I can't make white blood cells in a healthy way, I could go into my stem cells, my hematopoeic stem cells, the ones that make white blood cells, with this little, let's call it a, 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 I'm trying to think of a nice analogy while I'm doing this, with, with this little molecule, we'll just stick with molecule, stick it into the cell and give it a job to do, and its job is to find that place in the genome where I know that mutation that's causing this disease is, and to chop that bit out and replace it with the right thing, replace it with the sequence that will fix that. Put that cell back in your, back in your bone marrow, and voila, you make healthy white blood cells. This technology exists. It's new, it's exciting, and it's being used for a lot of different things these days. But it can also be used to bring a mammoth back to life. So all we have to do, actually, is sequence parts of the mammoth instead of the whole thing. Just the parts that are important, figure out which bits we want to change, and then change an elephant into a mammoth. So how do we do that? So, yeah, it's still kind of hard, right? So I just said, I said that all the important bits that, well, the potentially important bits are going to be regions that we can't assemble. But it's not necessarily true that all the bits are going to be like that. And if we are able to find this in sequence parts of the mammoth, and we do this magical genome editing thing, and I'm not going to go into much detail about it because it's kind of confusing, but I'd be happy to talk to people about it afterward if you want to learn about it. We can then take the edited genomes, and we can do all of this cloning technology, and we can put it into a female elephant, and we can bring that elephant-mammoth hybrid to term, and we can then have something that we can release into the wild. So if we think about it like this, now the next big question becomes, since we can do this, since we have this technology to be able to change parts of the genome, to genetically engineer an elephant so that it's more like a mammoth, what should we actually change? Now, elephants and mammoths are separated by about as much genetic distance as we are from chimpanzees. That means that there are a lot of differences 
Not many. I said that their genome is maybe four billion base pairs long. There may be a million differences, potentially, between a mammoth and an elephant. Now, the technology is not good enough yet where we can make all million changes. It just isn't. At some point, this technology will be better. But for now, we have to choose wisely. We have to choose maybe a few things that we want to make. So the way that we've started with this is with hemoglobin. So a few years ago, there was a paper that was published that showed that mammoth hemoglobin and elephant hemoglobin differed only at three places. So hemoglobin is the stuff in your red blood cells that carries oxygen around the body, right? And they found, this is a hemoglobin gene, that there are three specific differences in one of the subunits of hemoglobin, only three between a mammoth and an elephant. And what's important about these three differences, and you can kind of see them here in this pretty plot here, is that when the hemoglobin cell has these three mammoth-specific changes, then the hemoglobin are much better at carrying oxygen around the body when it's cold. So this seems like a pretty obvious thing to change if we want to take a tropically adapted elephant and stick him into Siberia, where it's going to be cold, right? So change these particular things. It turns out that uh, elephants don't really like it when it's cold, although they seem to do okay in some zoos when it's cold. So just, you know, we're not talking about killing elephants. This is a little bit of a thing going in here anyway. So this is the team of people who are doing this work. This work is, ta is taking place in George Church's lab. This is George. Uh, his lab is at Harvard. And they have so far uh, made elephant cells that contain these three changes and are working on two other adaptations to cold. One is to make elephants have what George calls the most luxurious, wonderful, long, and extra luxurious hair, right? Hairy elephants, <laughs> mammoths, right? And another idea would be to increase the amount of subcutaneous fat so that these guys can actually do better when it's really cold outside. So the idea here is to take a tropically adapted species and give them, using this genome editing technology, the capacity to survive where it's cold. So they go through and they make these changes using a technology that's known as CRISPR-Cas9 technology. This is the genome editing technology that has just come uh, to the surface. It's about a year old, and it's already been shown to work in about 20 different species, and there are a lot of different species where people are trying to figure out how, how to use this technology. We can actually do this. We can sequence part of the mammoth. We can do the CRISPR-Cas9 editing, and we can do this. And then it gets a little bit harder. So at this point in our mammoth cloning experiment, we have an elephant. And that elephant has a 4 billion base pair genome, about, let's say, 10 bases of which have been changed so that it has some genes that are mammoth-like, and it's expressing those genes in a mammoth-like way. The next thing we have to do is put that slightly edited elephant baby into a maternal host where it can be brought to term. And now we have a problem. So we know that not all of the way that we end up looking and acting is the result of our genome sequence, right? So we are a combination of our genomes and the environments in which we're born and raised, and even the environment in which we develop. So for example, we know that there are many genes that are actually turned on and off or regulated, so upregulated or downregulated, not by the genome of the developing embryo, but by the genome of the mother in which that embryo is developing. So if we have changed a gene inside this elephant to be more mammoth-like, and it's developing inside an elephant, and that elephant mom is regulating whether that gene is being expressed or to what extent it's being expressed, we don't know whether or not we will end up with the mammoth-like expression of that gene or the elephant-like expression of that gene. We know that developmental environment is important in determining phenotype, how we look and how we act. We know that the, the for example, there was this fascinating study where um, people were looking at how mouse diets affected the ability of mouse babies to digest certain things. It was fats in this case. And they fed mother mice a diet uh, that was high in a certain type of fat and then stopped feeding them that diet. They went back on the regular mouse diet. And then later, 
those mice moms got pregnant, and then they gave birth, and then they measured the capacity of the baby mice that were born to digest this thing that the mothers were upregulated for prior to becoming pregnant. And they found that where mother's diet had been different, it affected the baby's ability to digest things, even though the diet hadn't differed during pregnancy. We don't understand how any of this works. It's called epigenetics. The idea that your environment is actually changing the way your genes are being expressed in your genome. This is a huge problem if we really think that this is a technology that we're going to use. If we have a mammoth hybrid baby developing inside an elephant mom who's eating an elephant diet and associating with other elephants in an elephant social system, what is that baby going to look like when it's born? Don't know. Another potential problem that isn't worth putting an actual picture here is that there may be some size constraints here. Now, it turns out with mammoths and elephants that this won't be too horrible. Um, the, the mammoths that lived toward the end of the late Pleistocene, the woolly mammoths, were about the same size as, uh, as present-day big Asian elephants. And so an Asian elephant mom could potentially be a pretty good host for uh, a woolly mammoth baby. Not so for other creatures that are hypothesized for, as to be good species for de-extinction efforts. Has anybody ever heard of uh, the stellar sea cow? Used to live off the coast of California, all the way up through uh, the Commander Islands and across there. It was giant. It was like a dugong. In fact, a dugong would be the host for a stellar sea cow. But the stellar sea cow was actually so big that it could feed a crew of several thousand people for a few weeks, right? That's why they went extinct, because, you know, kill one, survive for a long time. When a stellar sea cow baby is born, it is already three times the size of a fully adult mom dugong. Not a good idea. Yeah? Terrifying. So it turns out, if we think about all these different constraints, whether we have access to DNA sequences that depends on whether something is preserved somewhere where it's cold and DNA is likely to survive, whether we can do any of these different technologies for stuff. Now, I've talked about mammoths and sea cows. These are mammals. We can clone these things, if we have an edited genome, using somatic cell nuclear transfer. But birds, it turns out, we still have no idea how to clone. Because of the complexities of their reproductive system, we don't have access to bird eggs at the time when we have access to mammal eggs. And cloning, as we know it, requires finding an egg that you can suck out the nucleus. We can't do that for birds. If you can't do that for birds, then we're stuck at a major technical hurdle for bringing any extinct bird species back to life. Although birds, for some reason, might be more compelling, sort of ecologically, to bring back than something like a mammoth. Ethically, is it a good idea to use Asian elephants to bring back mammoths? I think not. Asian elephants need to be focusing on making more Asian elephants, not on being used in crazy experiments to bring back hybrid mammoths. Birds, it might be easier to come up with compelling reasons why it might not be so unfair to the animals to do it. And yet, the actual process, the technical process, is not as easy. This is stellar sea cow, by the way. He's big, huh? Yeah. So there are some species. This is the heath hen, for example. And this has been suggested as uh, a species. There actually is de-extinction efforts going on for all of these species right now. The heath hen has been suggested as a good one. But I find it hard to come up with a compelling reason to bring back the heath hen because it's a prairie chicken and we have prairie chickens. Why not just take a prairie chicken and introduce it to Martha's Vineyard and call it a heath hen? It's the same thing. <laughs> We're actually working on that project in my lab, so don't tell the funders. <laughs> Just kidding. They, they've heard me say that anyway. So to the question of can we, I have to say that the answer is, is kind of. And it's not a really satisfying answer. We can do parts of this, and we can do parts of it for some species, but not parts of it for other species. And there really isn't anywhere where everything that we can do overlaps. So right now, the technology exists to do some super cool things, but we can't really bring it all together just yet to bring an extinct species back to life. And should we, anyway? And this is the kind of thing that I actually like to say for the discussion afterward. But as a starting point to talk about should we, I'd just like to highlight a couple of comments that were made by Professor Paul Ehrlich, a very well-known, very smart and thoughtful population and conservation geneticist from Stanford, who really hates the idea of de-extinction, really hates it. 
He, has, he makes a lot of interesting and, and mostly useful points in his arguments against de-extinction. And I've brought up three of them right here. De-extinction seems far-fetched, financially problematic, and extremely unlikely to succeed. Yes. Yes. So did going to the moon and sequencing the human genome and all kinds of other things that we've done that we've learned a lot from in the process of doing it and getting it done. Yes, this is, this is true. It's financially problematic. It's expensive and it's far-fetched, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. And it doesn't mean that the things that we learn while we're going through the steps of doing this aren't useful. What if we take this CRISPR-Cas genome engineering technology and instead of using it to bring extinct species back to life, use it to facilitate faster adaptation of species that are on the brink of extinction today. If there is a population, for example, that isn't able to adapt to changing temperatures, perhaps because it's nearly extinct today and all of its genetic diversity is gone, can we go back into the past and sample from that population prior to when it lost all that diversity and learn which parts of the genome facilitated their adaptation and survival in this environment and then edit those genomes to make them better able to survive? This, in fact, is quite a a cool potential new technology for biodiversity conservation, not of extinct species, but of species and populations that are alive and struggling today. I think that's a compelling reason to work on this technology. Spending millions trying to de-extinct a few species will not compensate for the thousands of species lost to human activity. Also true, definitely true. And I don't know what to say about that other than you're right. You know, but what are we going to do? I think that we have to come up with ways to motivate people to care and to think about, about uh, biodiversity and conservation. Part of this argument is that money will be taken away from conservation work that would otherwise go to conserving species today that would go into the de-extinction effort. And I don't think that's true. People give to causes that they care about. People who want to save polar bears, the spotted owl, are probably not the same people who want to bring mammoths back to life. So if anything, this technology, this movement, this idea might actually bring more and new money into biodiversity conservation that isn't there. And finally, if people take a Jurassic Park future seriously, they will do even less to stem the, bu the building's sixth great mass extinction. This I don't believe is true, and kind of for a depressing reason. This assumes that most people care about extinction, and I would argue that most people don't. That most people really only care about extinctions as long as it personally affects them. And I don't think giving people an option to do something cool and interesting is going to change that. So it's kind of sad, but I have to say I disagree. So this actually was part of a, a written debate between Paul and Stuart Brand, who's been uh, kind of the leader, the vocal leader of this de-extinction effort. And, and Stuart, in his reply, this is on Yale 360, Environment 360, if you want to look it up and do it, he said, if it looks like a passenger pigeon and flies like one, is it the original bird? And I'm sure that Stuart was thinking, if it looks like it and it acts like it, it's it. What's it, right? We should care none at all that it's not there. And I would have to say, no, it's not. If we change a little bit of, a of an elephant so that it has a little bit of a mammoth genome inside that elephant genome, and it's an elephant that is capable of living in Siberia, it's still not a mammoth. <laughs> but I don't care. I don't care that it's not a mammoth if there is a compelling reason to bring it back. And I'm going to end just by, uh, on this note, of trying to explain why I think that the mammoth, aside from the kind of ethical problems and animal welfare questions of working with elephants, why, if we could get around all of the ethical dilemmas involved with doing this, why bringing a mammoth back to life, I think, is a good idea. I think there is compelling ecological reason to try to bring these things back. So I have a friend and colleague who's uh, Sergei Zimov. He works in northeastern Siberia outside of this kind of research station right here. His house is kind of cool, but in a place that I don't want to live. Right? Um, so anyway, he, for the last many years, has been buying up huge plots of land around where his research center is and creating this thing called Pleistocene Park. So Sergei would like to have this Pleistocene park, and he now has one that's closer to Moscow as well. He has two Pleistocene parks. One is easier to access by car than the other one. Give you a guess which one that is. 
He wants to have a place where we can take these things that we're bringing back to life and we can let them be. We can let them live as they once did. And he has so far collected about five different species of, be of deer. He has uh, bison from North America. He has muskox and he has wild horses. And he has all of these species that are living in this part of the world that he's called Pleistocene Park, just letting them act like they would have during the Pleistocene. And he has, some, has made several really fascinating observations in his Pleistocene Park. So parts of the park are fenced off. And that means that the animals can't graze in them. So this is the fence, one of the fenced areas. This is part of the area that they are grazing. And this is the part of the area that they're not grazing. The important thing to know about this picture is it's early spring. The snow has just melted. So here, where there are grazing animals, there's almost no vegetation left because they have returned to this area throughout the winter to eat the stuff that was there. So he's noticed that in these areas right here, during the summer, during peak productivity, you actually get a very rich and abundant and diverse grassland, really similar to those grasslands that were there during the Pleistocene, that just the presence of these herbivores wandering around, digging up the dirt, pooing, moving around, fertilizing things, moving seeds around, have caused this grassland to regenerate. They make their own ecosystem, right? And doing that has provided habitat for other species, like saiga antelope, that are struggling to find rich sources of grass and stuff to eat. So this is what the, the ungrazed area looks like. It's really not diverse, just a few species of grass, not very rich. So you can actually generate a rich grassland with these animals. The second compelling reason is that these areas right here, you'll see there's a lot of exposed dirt here. And there's this kind of grassy stuff here. So these grasslands are so rich during the summer that the animals can't eat all of it. That means that during the winter, they come back to the richest lands and they dig up the snow, they expose the soil, and they continue to eat the grass that's there until there's nothing left. So snow, it turns out, is a very effective insulator. And the temperature of the Siberian permafrost is kind of an average of the ambient above ground temperature over the year. So in the summer, it can get up to 70 degrees, and in the winter, it's 40 below. But the average temperature of the permafrost has been creeping slowly upward because of snow. Because as an insulator, it's stopping that really cold air from getting to that soil, and the soil is maintaining the heat from the summer for much longer, so the temperature is increasing. Sergey noticed that where he had these grazing herbivores, the average subsurface soil temperature in the winter was somewhere between 15 and 20 degrees Celsius colder than where there weren't grazing herbivores. So why is that interesting? One of the most important sources of atmospheric carbon, methane, is the melting permafrost. This permafrost, because of the snow cover, is warming up and melting. And as it's melting, it's releasing this carbon into the atmosphere. There is currently as much carbon trapped in the Siberian permafrost as there is in the atmosphere right now. If we could bring back mammoths and make this grassland <laughs> widespread across the Siberian tundra, I know this is crazy, right? Stay with me just for one more minute, right? <laughs> Could we potentially have a tremendous positive impact on the rate of global warming? It's insane, right? But it might just work. <laughs>